Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's Dry Cleaner Cast, we're joined by author Julia Ebner. We discuss her new book, The Rage, which looks at the vicious circle between far-right and Islamist extremists. Just a quick service announcement, this is the final episode of 2017. I just want to say a huge thank you to everybody who's been listening and supporting this podcast over the year. We will be returning in late January, and we have some very interesting guests coming up. So I want to wish you all happy holidays, and all the best for 2018. And don't forget to check out our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. On there you'll find links to past episodes, you'll also find links to books from some of the authors that we've interviewed, and on our blog we have some suggestions for some spy-related presents for spy buffs within your family. I hope you enjoy this month's episode. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film The Dry Cleaner. Julia, welcome to the Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you for having me. Hi. It's great to have you. Um, before we begin, can you just tell us a sort of bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. So I'm a research fellow at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which is a London-based counter-extremism organization. We do projects on the ground, but also do a lot of research. And my focus is mainly uh, well, cumulative extremism, the relationship between Islamist and far-right extremism, and also what the new strategies of the extreme right uh, movements are globally. And my background is in, in my bachelor I did philosophy and international business. I then did a master's in China. <laughs> it's actually quite far from the topic I'm currently dealing with, but it was in uh, Chinese politics and international relations. Yeah. And then I shifted my focus more to the Middle East to focus on jihadism and uh, Middle Eastern history at a degree at LSE, uh, the London School of Economics. Yeah. And then I went to join the uh, first counter-extremism think tank, Quilliam, and I worked there for a couple of years before then joining ISD and publishing my book last month. Yeah, so you've written this fantastic book called The Rage that looks at the relationship between Islamist extremists and the Western far right. Can you just give us a sort of brief overview of the book and why you felt it was important to write it? Yeah, so I started writing this book, uh, it was in the week of June 2016 when the Orlando attack happened in, um, in the gay nightclub uh, carried out by a jihadist and what I... A few days after that, Joe Cox was murdered, the British uh, Labour MP was murdered here in the UK and I just felt that I, I could see this rise, working for Quilliam at that time, I could see this simultaneous rise in both Islamist and far-right extremist attacks and I was wondering what the relationship was between the two and one of the things that I found most worrying is that in fact terrorist attacks themselves are scary but more importantly is, uh, or the bigger threat um, of terrorism is what they cause in the aftermath and how they rip apart our societies. And that's one of the things I really want to look into and also how 
the uh, interaction and the, the symbiotic relationship that I could see between far-right and Islamist extremism, kind of provoking each other into more violent action and helping each other's narratives. Yeah. So I, I looked into that a bit deeper in that, re in that research. Yeah, brilliant. What's the reaction been to the book so far? That's, um, that's a good question. I think there were a lot of different reactions. I mean, I had quite, it was quite well received across the political spectrum. But interestingly, and not, unsu not, not surprisingly, um, I had quite a few very negative reactions from the extreme fringes, uh, with foreign extremists saying, oh, well, the bit about Islamist extremism is, I mean, is, is good, but the bit about the far right is complete crap, <laughs> which, is, which is, of course, natural. And I had the other, from the other side, from the Islamist extremist side, it would be the same. Um, I think it's probably, I, I hope that this means that at least I'm, I'm trying to keep a balance between the two and to keep a consistent approach mm -hmm. across all, um, all forms of extremism. So I was expecting to get to get criticised um, yeah. from both sides. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of say that if you're um, upsetting someone, you're doing something right, aren't you? Yeah, hopefully. Well, I'm still waiting for the negative endorsements, and maybe I'm going to put them on the back of my book next <laughs> to the, the more middle ground positive quotes. Um, so I'd like to go into the far right and Islamist extremists and what they believe. Um, Let's start by looking at the far right. Can you just sort of give us a sort of dummy's guide, if you will, to the ideas of the far right and the origins of those ideas? Yeah, so I think what's interesting on the far right is that there is, of course, not one coherent ideology. Mm. Uh, but what is common, what most of, their, most of the today's far right movements have in common, and in general extreme right groups have in common, is that narrative of an ongoing or an imminent, inevitable war between races or cultures. And then you get elements um, to the different, different ideological elements to different degrees, such as nationalism, racism, xenophobia, anti-democracy, advocacy for a strong state. And that's according to the definition, for example, that Kasmut, um, the far-right ex uh, expert, gave. But what's interesting nowadays is that we see a split between the European far-right movements, which are mostly the counter-jihad movement and the Nouvelle Droite move, uh, intellectual movement that came from France, which are a lot more focused on the cultural aspects, these dividing lines along, along culture and the ethno-cultural uh, divisions, and not so much on race. And in the US, it's much more focused on race, so the alt-right. Um, for example. And then you get, in addition to that, both in the US and in Europe, you get the traditional neo-Nazis who would um, have, have all of these elements, and very strong anti-Semitic elements. But it's, it's what I found fascinating in a way and very disturbing is that often the transition is very, it's very blurry. Sometimes the lines get very blurred between anti-immigration and Islamophobia, which is present in most, in, all of the far-right groups, for example, we examined in our report at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, we found elements of these, but then often they get carried into the more anti-Semitic, racist echo chambers, and yeah. what often starts as anti-immigration views quickly transforms into something yeah. more extreme, and, and that is then fundamentally racist and, and anti-Semitic. And yeah, I think now we're seeing a renaissance of some of the ideas that, that are being 
that are not new, that are, can be traced back to centuries ago, we already had anti-Semitism. But we really see that people are rereading ideologues also that inspired fascism, like uh, Julius Evola, for example. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how, I think it was to a certain degree, probably a combination of the migration crisis, of terrorism, that since the millennial turn, we saw a renaissance of some, some degree of some old ideas, but a rebranding of those ideas, mm -hmm. and really a resurfacing of some of the uh, far-right ideal, uh, ideologies that we saw in the, in the, 20, uh, in the 20th century. Yeah, and have you, um are there any, sorry, it's a bit of a strange question, but I mean, have you seen any um, evidence of um, kind of like different countries or um, sort of financing or pushing certain agendas? As people talk about potential um, financial links to Russia and the rise of the far right in Europe, and then you've got like in America, you have sort of evangelical Christians and, and how the far right sort of attach themselves to sort of that message and things like that. Yeah, so there are different things to say about that. I think one of the most interesting um, opportunistic alliances comes from the fact that, of course, Russia and far-right groups across Europe and the US all try to destabilize Europe or to reshuffle the cards so that they can benefit from a new, uh, kind of a new order. And I think that's something they have in common. So they would. So of course there was. Uh, we saw a lot of Russian influence in in some of the uh, far right operations carried out online. Also some of the financial support, mostly for far right political parties. Uh, there is also an increasing degree of collaboration across borders, also between um, U.S. groups and European groups, and. It's, that's, I found that that is something that really unites, um, I think, Islamist extremists and, and far-right extremists, but also Russia, that this, this goal of destabilizing mm -hmm. Europe. Mm -hmm. And that's also something where we see this inadvertent um, collaboration, and, or not, not, yeah, not purposeful, not explicit collaboration, not always, but in a way they feed off one another or they work towards common goals. And that's also one of the parallels I could find. Yeah, well, you're mentioning it just now, but what is the ultimate goal of the far right and how do they envisage achieving that goal? So, for most of them, it's purely to shift the Overton window, or that's the first strategic goal, to shift the Overton window so that what's acceptable in public discourse further to the right and to really push uh, political parties and the, the establishment into adopting stricter measures towards immigration, uh, Islam. So they, so that there's there are slight there are cosmetic differences between the different groups in terms of their goals, but most of them would want um, completely secured borders and the kind of bringing back all the refugees and migrants to the countries that they they originally came from, and into some to well then the strategies differ. Some of them would adopt political means, others would adopt activism, and then of course there's those. Who, are, who adopt violent means to reach those goals. Now, online spaces are playing an important part in the world of the far right. The online world is a sort of curious blend of subcultures from anti-feminists to those gamer groups to conspiracy theorists. Yet these groups don't actively promote extremism, but they appear to be sort of fertile ground for the alt-right to hijack these groups as their topics of naturally align. Can you just talk to us about how important the online world is to the far right in promoting its ideas? Yeah, hugely important. So 
within the last few years, there has been an increasing convergence on some of the online platforms, um, especially on some of the messaging boards like 4chan, 8chan, where groups who w sometimes weren't even political in the first place, but kind of found a common ground in their um, increasing grievances towards the, the political establishment, towards progressive ideas, towards what they would call the globalist elites, the left, um, but also feminism. And it's interesting to see all these, that all of these different fringe groups or, yeah, and, and, and sometimes it was uh, the more the conspiracy theorists, but sometimes there were elements of gamer communities who had a grievance of, of femin uh, against feminists, uh, but also then groups who would be, who, who would just uh, talk about immigration a lot, how, would, how they would come together in the run-up to the US election and really have that common goal of bringing Trump who would unite all of these groups in a way because he was appealing to the more misogynic uh, but also the, the anti-immigration uh, and some of the conspiracy theorists as well. So he was really able to unite these groups which made them coalesce even more around common ideas and increasingly adopt a common kind of a common ideology as well. Yeah, yeah. And th those words like the elite or globalist come up so often, especially around um, the Brexit debate last year and the election of Trump as well. Yeah, it's, it's part of, so that's also what I meant when I said sometimes the anti-immigration uh, views or that could, that also lead to conspiracy theories about there is an ongoing Muslim invasion of Europe, um, how these then often uh, move into the more uh, or move towards conspiracy theories that would say oh actually there is an ongoing white genocide and it's orchestrated by the globalist Jewish elites so it, it's there, there is this evolution of, of conspiracy theories that build up and uh, get of course in these online fringe platforms are kind of reinforced because of this effect of creating huge echo chambers, global echo chambers, where all these conspiracy theories are shared, fake news is shared, and they really, they have started creating their own alternative platforms because now increasingly they have been kicked off by, uh, from the popular uh, mainstream platforms, especially after the Charlottesville rally. Mm -hmm. And now they uh, set up their own media platforms, their own crowdsourcing platforms, but also and financial structures, but also their own chats and political forums. So it's interesting how these online, almost parallel societies form. Yeah. And I mean, not it's it's. I wouldn't say that all of this is is necessarily a bad thing, but uh, there are definitely some dangerous trends within those fringe platforms. And. <laughs> <laughs> Two people who always seem to come up in the conspiracy theories that I've seen online is usually criticism of Angela Merkel, um, how somehow she's you know um, sold uh, Europeans and Germans down the the river, or George Soros, who apparently is financing everything at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these are this is I think the two most. Uh, the two favorite topics are Merkel as an example of the failed. Um, her failed immigration policies, the failed uh, what they would call cultural Marxism, um, but also George Soros as the example of uh, a Jewish billionaire uh, 
philanthropic investor who would, according to them, be behind that white genocide. Yeah. Well, if uh, George Soros is listening, if he goes to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast, donations are welcome. <laughs> anyway, um, you mentioned in your book that the most successful online groups tend to have an effective street wing. Can you just give us a guide to some of these groups who exist in the UK and their international links? Yeah. In the UK, we have nowadays a very splintered far-right landscape because all of the big movements. Um, and it's true that in the past, most of the successful movements really combined online and offline activism, such as the EDL, uh, Pegida. And I think, to a certain extent, we have seen novel approaches now because now, for example, Generation Identity, which originally formed in, in Europe and has wings, has uh, offshoots all across Europe is also in the process now of setting up a UK branch and they are really good at, at launching media stunts generating a lot of, of attention from the media and um, but also leading information operations online and I think and, and they're also increasingly learning from the old right and then of course you would also get uh, very the more militant groups like uh, National Action, which then operated under its alliances NS131 uh, and Scottish Dawn, and which is more which is really organized training camps that were modeled after ISIS uh, after ISIS training camps and had very a lot of similarities again with the Islamist uh, militant groups and with the jihadist groups. But yeah, I think increasingly now. Um, and that, that is true for all across the world, but especially also for the UK. We see transatlantic cooperation, we see loose networks uh, that are no longer, not all of the, the far-right uh, sympathizers are members of specific groups now, but because the internet has really facilitated co cooperation online, they more often would kind of share common goals and mobilize around these common goals or uh, coordinate around specific events and then come together offline for specific events. Because mm, before the online, they were quite fringe and I suppose they were having to do mail outs and have physical meetups, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. And they still, I mean, there are still a lot of groups who do that because it's often necessary in order to have a strong group identity. I think this offline dimension is, is fundamental uh, to maintaining that. but. Yeah, it's, it's, there is definitely an exchange of knowledge across borders and a mobilization within those fringe platforms and also encrypted messaging apps that, are, uh, that sometimes see members from across the world kind of co cooperate on information operations, PSYOP yeah. style. Yeah, I mean, these people are not idiots. They're, I mean, I think I was reading in your report um, um, that they've been using, um, well, information that's come out about like GCHQ online tactics and the intelligence services. They're hugely sophisticated. Uh, they have, yeah, they have even used some of the, the leaked um, government documents against their own governments mm. to influence elections. So it's quite, it's interesting to see, uh, yeah, how, how they translate this online their strength in mobilizing people online into real-world impact through that. Mm. And I suppose if they want to um, get into the mainstream, they need to put on a sort of respectable face. Well, yeah, it's they often camouflage some more extreme ideas behind uh, their public face, which is which tries to be politically correct, mm. and that's a very uh, that's their explicit strategy that they would talk about in these encrypted messaging apps. 
when they speak about how to infiltrate the mainstream, how to kind of what they would call rat pill the normies, so kind of radicalize the normal people on the mainstream in internet and social media platforms. They're quite good at that, and I think they've sensed that there is a potential, there's a niche to be filled, especially within um, the more the, the, the platforms that younger people use, and they've been really good at galvanizing younger people, especially Generation Set, which grew up after the after 9-11. I think that's also something we see on both sides, on the Islamist and on the far-right extremist side, that these younger generations, born after this war on terror started, have been more susceptible to ideologies on both sides. I think because they don't know the world before 9-11, basically. Mm, mm, yeah, no, I mean, there's, yeah, I think of a lot of political movements, um, you know, people don't always necessarily know the historical context of things, and they're just sort of seeing the information is presented them to, to, you know, in the present. One interesting term you just mentioned, um, political correct, it's a term that kind of comes up a lot, I've noticed, on these online debates, should we say the respectable side of the far right, people like when we talk about sort of Islamist extremism and things like that, and we try and get into the nuances of that, people criticize experts as being just politically correct you know this term yeah. comes up a lot doesn't it yeah there is there's this whole um, backlash against what is perceived as politically overcorrect um, the politically overcorrect establishment and this effort to break taboos to explicitly use these politics of transgression especially on the internet that was initially some of the some of the things started as jokes and really just um, this be a lot of people were fed up with with always having to use politically correct terms and I think that that generated a movement that or different movements that are um, that want to yeah in a way find it cool or, or hip to revolt against these this sense of political correctness yeah and it's sort of tapping into that natural, and it's a bit of a cliche, but that natural feeling of rebellion in younger people, teenagers and things like that. Yeah, and that's also why I think they've, the, some of the far-right groups have really been able to resonate well with the German youth, um, because especially within the German context, because of, of course, uh, Germany's history, there has been uh, a very strong sense of this political correctness, of a lot of taboos that are now, that these younger generations are now trying to break, and that's why uh, when looking at Germany specifically, but of course also that is that is also true for the U.S., mm. especially on the topic of race, for example, mm. in the U.S., that that has had a lot of appeal to some some people to to break these taboos. And that particularly came out during Trump's election, like with Pepe. Is it Pepe the Frog? Yes. And yeah. meme culture and all that. I mean, that's the thing. The the weaponization of culture uh, is something that the alt right has really mastered quite well, and a lot better, unfortunately, than any of the counter responses that have been given so far. So. It's interesting to see that for the first time now we see a uh, counterculture emerging from the right rather than from the left. Traditionally all the cool movements or counterculture movements came from the left or those that resonated with young people. Mm. And now uh, there seems to be a bit of a lag or a bit of, yeah, there seems to be a bit of a time lag in the response that is provided from the middle ground or from the left mm. in order to also provide a balanced, uh, like, uh, yeah, counterculture to the counterculture in a way. Yeah, I suppose at the moment I think liberals on the left feel like they're the ones who are trying to 
protect um, normal normalcy or whatever, and um, and so they're probably now being seen as a little bit out of step with this sort of sense of change that everybody seems to want, but no one seems to better define exactly what change it is they do want. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I think there is a lot of potential to tap into some of. I, I think that there are a lot of uh, potentially. I think often you sh uh, it's it's necessary to use humor or to use culture in order to to get people motivated around uh, common goals because mm -hmm. now there doesn't seem to be anything um, or nothing that can match the sophistication of the uh, of the alt right definitely. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Um, let's have a quick look at um, Islamist extremism because we don't want to forget them either. Don't want them to feel left out. So, um, so this year, unfortunately, we've witnessed a large number of terrible ISIS-inspired terrorist attacks, both in London, Manchester, in European cities such as Barcelona and Paris, just to name a few. And also in October, we suffered, um, sorry, in October, Kenya suffered one of its most deadly attacks in which 300 people were killed by a truck bomb detonated by the terrorist group Al-Shabaab. Um, like the far right, there are multiple Islamist groups that share an ideology and a common goal. Can you just talk us through the various Islamist groups that currently exist and what their main aims are and how they sort of differ from one another? Yeah, of course. Not an easy question. Uh, yeah, I mean, especially for a limited time, that yeah. could be could go on for hours. But just maybe um, in, in very briefly, I would say that the two, of course, the two uh, movements that are still operating on an international level that have international relevance are, of course, uh, Islamic State and Al Qaeda, and then there are. Uh, tons of, of regional movements that are often affiliated to or in alliance with those those two organizations. But um, I mean, for example, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al the Al-Nusra Front, which now recently changed its name to HTS, uh, operating mostly in Syria, and then various, as I said, multiple other groups. That, um, but I think um, the ideological differences between ISIS and Al-Qaeda, for example, and most of the groups uh, in most of the jihadist groups are rather cosmetic, but their strategic uh, approach to reaching this goal of establishing, um, well, establishing a caliphate uh, is very different. So, for example, one of the differences between ISIS and Al-Qaeda is that ISIS would have, ISIS uh, decided to immediately establish a caliphate, while Al-Qaeda saw that more as a long-term strategic goal. And it's and now they are really competing for influence, especially as uh, Al Qaeda is growing stronger. Islamic State, at least territorially, is growing weaker. They have been competing for regional influence, but also for global recruits. And I think the two main threats now are that Al Qaeda uh, affiliated movements, or in general, Al Qaeda has really benefited from this disproportionate or or this almost exclusive focus mm -hmm. on on the threat from ISIS on the side of the international community. And that is something where Al-Qaeda might step up uh, their efforts in the close future and might actually make use of, of the networks that they have been able to rebuild in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. And some, some security experts are saying that they are now stronger than, than pre-9-11. 
and of course with the uh, with the son of uh, Osama bin Laden, Hamza bin Laden, now there might be there might be a completely new approach or new um, yeah a new wave of Al Qaeda inspired attacks as well. Mm -hmm. That is definitely one of the threats I think to keep in mind. The other the other major threat I think is that now that ISIS has has lost most of its territory, its ideological appeal shouldn't be underestimated. So because they still have quite a good, especially online, they're still operating in most of the Telegram encrypted messaging apps. They're across different languages and different um, regions. I'm, I'm in, in, in many of their German-speaking, but also French-speaking, English-speaking channels, and they're still quite good at, uh, even though they get shut down online, they're still good at spreading their ideas and, and radicalizing uh, people across the world. And so I think it's it's always important to keep in mind that the end of even the end of ISIS territorially speaking wouldn't mean the end of uh, of ISIS-inspired terrorism or and even less so the end of international jihadism. Yeah, sadly, it kind of reminds me. They kind of, in my mind, um, I see them sort of turning into almost like a, a PLO or Black September type group, like we saw in the sort of seventies. And it was interesting about those kind of groups. They had a lot of popular sort of European support as well. Yeah, that, that, there's. I think in general there's so much we can learn from different movements throughout history. Mm. This is all not a novel. I mean, terrorism isn't really a new uh, a new trend. And I think we don't have to also when countering it. We can probably learn from from some of the history and don't have to reinvent the wheel. Uh, the wheel. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's definitely a strategic shift as well that we see in regards to the use of, or there might be a shift in regards to the use of women, um, because what over the summer what happened was that ISIS for the first time released uh, in their propaganda magazine Ramia a justification, a theological justification of the use of women in combatant roles as well. So that might also mean that they move away from their very uh, traditional primary, uh, sorry, secondary roles of women uh, as wives and as mothers and sometimes as propaganda instruments towards a more active role also in staging terrorist attacks in, uh, yeah, taking up combatant roles. I think that's a sign of weakness, but that might, might also pose a, a severe threat to, to global security. Yeah, and I, I'm from a former interview I was just doing with Tony McMohan, um, just a few weeks ago, he was talking about the importance of women in communities and actually combating extremism at the moment. Um, and maybe do Islamic uh, Islamic State and other groups sort of acknowledge that? And this is maybe why they're targeting women now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think that is that is really something that we will also at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue um, increasingly look into over the next few months how this develops and uh, what the new trends are that we we can see here. Yeah. Well, um, can you just give us a brief, as brief as you can, um, not easy this one, but can you give us a brief history of the ideas of Islamist extremists and what they, you know, their ideology, what is it that they actually believe? <laughs> yeah, well, that's an even bigger question, but um, yeah, definitely. There's, I would say that um, in the late, mm, yeah, 20, I would say the 20th century, but also the late 19th century, has really seen that emergence of political Islam. Sometimes they, of course, draw on ideologues that go as far back as to the 13th century with Ibn Tamiyyah, 
um, being one of the first ideologues that, uh, that were even quoted in the 9-11 uh, commission report to have inspired bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Uh, because back then there was the, the Mongol invasion and so he issued a fatwa that would for the first time really justify a jihad uh, against, even against Mus the Muslim rulers who were converts back then, but he would, uh, he, he would uh, a lot of his thoughts also on uh, this ignorance the, um, of, uh, well, of these Muslim rulers would, would then inspire um, na jihadists nowadays. And to a similar degree, uh, um, to a similar degree, I think some of the 20th century ideologues like Qutb, with his book Milestones, really provided a lot of inspiration for Al Qaeda, but also for ISIS. And it's uh, it's this. It's, it's probably this backlash that was created after the Enlightenment values were spread throughout the colonized um, world and, and this backlash against Western influence that brought this resurgence of, of political Islam or this really this, this um, that made it flourish. And while Ibn, while Ibn Tamir would be called the ideological godfather, uh, I think Assam, for example, uh, who really was was influential in the in the first uh, Afghanistan war against the Soviet invasion brought together a lot of jihadist fighters from across the world so he was called the uh, the father of, of global jihad and of this transnational uh, jihad against foreign forces and so I think there are, there are several ideologues Maududi is another one uh, who would have who would provide this this idea of that man-made law is shouldn't be acceptable, and that Muslims have to, uh, yeah, have to have to fight against any forms of, of man-made law or bid'a, bid'a again being the concept of innovation within Islam. You've stated in your book that the ultimate goal of Islamist extremist groups is to provoke civil wars that de that destabilize the current world order. By creating more fear and outrage, they can divide, they can drive societies apart and exacerbate existing tensions. Can you just talk to us a bit about that? Mm, yeah. I think the ultimate goal of any terrorist group, because they're always in the weaker position, um, because in, in this asymmetric warfare, they have to stage something that would provoke their opposite side into taking disproportionate action that might completely reshuffle the cards. So their ultimate goal is to create chaos and that's also that's apparent in all of the uh, strategy documents from, from different terrorist organizations but most notably here is probably the Al-Qaeda, the management of, of savagery, uh, their 2020 plan where they would want to provoke a global civil war between Muslims and non-Muslims until 2020. They would want this final battle to happen that also builds on this uh, end of times prophecy that uh, where they think that the end of times is, is coming and there will be a final battle happening in Dabiq mm -hmm. and that will lead to the end of what they would call the global oppression of Muslims by the West. And this idea of, well, of, of these two uh, monolithic blocks, the West and Islam, being in, in opposition to each other and having to come to some form of, of conflict where one or the other will win, that's something that is inherent, again, to both Islamists and far-right extremists who would see this race or culture war happening 
um, and would want to accelerate that. So that's that's also the reason for staging terrorist attacks is not solely to to harm the enemy uh, f physically, but really to break apart their democratic structures, to cause chaos, mm -hmm. to to benefit from from this um, yeah from the societal backlash that it creates and from all the rifts that they can create. Yeah, yeah. Now. Um, in your book, you make a very important point that most Muslims are not Islamists and, most, and that most Islamists are not jihadists. Can you just talk about why these distinctions are important? I think it's, it's hugely important to make a distinction between, um, I mean, 99% of all Muslims living in the West aren't, Islam, aren't jihadists and aren't even Islamists. So Islamism is the politicized version of the religion of Islam. It's a political ideology that is again inspired by these different political uh, ideologues, mostly of the 20th century. But then th the goal of most Islamists um, would be to create, to establish a caliphate, sometimes a global caliphate, and to impose Sharia law, or one version of Sharia law. And and the, the, the way in which Islamists want to reach their goals, that is what, depend, that, that, that is what where it depends if they can be considered jihadists or not. So most of the Islamists aren't jihadists because they would just simply want to reach that goal by using dawah, by using uh, missionary, uh, well, yeah, trying to convince people um, through missionary work. But uh, jihadists would then resort to more violent means and would use terrorist attacks, would use martyrdom operations to, to do that. So yeah, like the, the far right, the online world plays an important role for Islamist extremist groups to gain supporters. It's reported that over, well, around 850 people from the UK have gone out to join ISIS. Can you just talk to us about how Islamist groups use the internet to gain supporters? Yeah, they have most often now because they have been shut down on, on most of the mainstream uh, social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook uh, have been really have, have really stepped up their efforts to shut down um, any accounts that would try to lure people into into the arms of extremists and any of the propaganda that is being spread but they are still operating on some of the on telegram on some some platforms that can be used to spread propaganda and often it starts with an online contact, but then it might, there, there are a lot of different pathways into extremism. There isn't one uh, sole way of recruiting people, but often it starts with online contact and would then be coupled with offline contact in public institutions where, uh, yeah, they would have a charismatic recruiter that can tap into some of the grievances of young people and link them to to more uh, to basically explaining them by using their narratives and using their ideologies uh, of uh, the global oppression of Muslims and then saying oh and that's why it's necessary to to fight back in the form of a jihad uh, and that's why it's necessary for Muslims to unite against the West. Mm -hmm. So that's then the arguments that they bring both online in Telegram where they show pictures of of Muslims uh, worldwide being, uh, well, they always would use examples also of, uh, of course, of the ongoing war in Syria, where civilists are killed, showing pictures of children being killed, but also using examples of discrimination of Muslims in their home countries. And that's where they can definitely use some of the far-right violence mm -hmm. to make a point uh, about the whole West being, again, generalizing this and saying, actually, 
these foreign extremists are just the real face of the West. Yeah, and, and these Islamist groups, they're not like four lions where they're a bunch of have a go, you know, um, what's the word I want now, you know, sort of lucky-go-happy jihadists who just happen to kind of botch together a plot whilst managing to kill members of their own team. I mean, these are quite sophisticated individuals and groups, and like the far right, there are groups that like to put a respectable face on the kind of, on the ideology that informs these groups, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, they're, in, in a way, I mean, they're all very good at being, uh, at mainstreaming, and they have all very clear strategies. Also, the Islamist extremists talk about how they would uh, be able to convert the what they would call the grey zone Muslims, the Muslims that don't support ISIS, which are most of the Muslims. Um, how they would be able to get them to support uh, the causes of ISIS or of um, of jihadists, and that's that's exactly where they actually like the fact that Trump was elected. They like the fact that. Uh, far extremists staged that rally in Charlottesville because they can use all this as an example to show, oh, actually the whole West is racist. Actually, just look at what happened in, now I saw a message on Telegram uh, of an ISIS-affiliated group, a German-speaking one, where they were saying, well, if you look at the results in the German election, you see that every, every seventh person voted for the far-right uh, AFD who would want to guess, uh, basically they, they think that every uh, fifth native German, because if you deduct the, the uh, immigrants from from that number, they would think that they even said then you, you can see, uh, you can look at people on the street and you can count to five and see that every fifth person want to, wants to kill you. Wow. So that's, what, that's <laughs> how they frame it. it. Yeah, yeah, they it put it that be. way, which is of mm. course also an exaggeration. Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that is, that is something where they are very good at tapping into the, the grievances that exist anyways in our societies. And if these societal rifts become bigger and if these tensions become more severe, I think there is potential on both sides of actually turning this prophecy of this inevitable war, which seems completely absurd, but of turning that into something more likely. And yeah. that is the danger. A self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now. Um, both far-right groups and Islamist groups um, kind of use and thrive on this, this clash of civilizations narrative. Can you just talk to us about this narrative and its importance to both groups? Yeah, that's that, so that's exactly, I think, the problem is that I don't, so if, if enough people believe that there is a fundamental clash of civilizations, this might turn into a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not really that there is necessarily one, but it, it, dep it all depends on how many people are convinced on, on both sides to join the, what they believe are the groups that fight for their own identity, their cultural or racial identity. And the problem is with forming these monolithic blocks that are opposed to each other, um, and by mainstreaming some of these ideologies, they might actually get to a point where uh, yeah, this turns into some form of conflict that is exactly what both groups want. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the clash of civilization uh, it plays a huge role in both of the, in, in both ideologies and both want to mainstream this narrative of, of this inevitable war. Now, can we just talk a little bit about the pathway to extremism? It appears that both the far and Islamist extremists as we're saying, thrive online, and they're increasingly drawing in young people, and in some cases, older people as well. 
Are there similarities in the types of people who are drawn to extremism and the way in which they become actively engaged? Yes, there are definitely common elements and patterns across the, the different profiles and radicalization pathways, although having said that, of course, it really varies from individual to individual on both sides. But I think that uh, often on both sides you would have similar pull and push factors, and the push factors are very often identity crises of some form, either not feeling like you can be Muslim and, um, and British at the same time, but uh, on the far right side it would often be the feeling that the West is, or their home country is being run over by immigrants, they don't really know anymore what, what actually their identity is. And, and then also grievances or frustrations about both domestic policies, but also uh, having a, and also foreign policies, but also having this sense of being discriminated against, being humiliated by the other. There's a lot of, in both of the uh, networks or movements that where I went to undercover to do some of the interviews and uh, to see what they say about the other, they spoke a lot about this, uh, about how the other side treats their women. So both were thinking that actually their women were being taken away by the other side. Yeah. The Islamist extremists would, would have emphasized the role of the West in sometimes uh, even soldiers, sometimes uh, raping their, their women, or also they spoke a lot about, yeah, they spoke a lot about the oppression of their women. And the same was true, of course, for, for the far-right um, networks who would emphasize the Islamist extremists or, or Muslims in general, that's what they would say, uh, are all part of these Muslim grooming gangs. They're raping our women. They're, um, again, the emphasis then on they're raping our white Western women. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of, um, you know, from Breitbart to uh, Infowars, who always show these articles. Um, and you have no idea who they're really sourced from about like how immigrants are raping women it's, uh, or like in swimming pools or I don't know, there's loads of places it just seems to be constantly rapes yeah. going on and it's... Uh, yeah. So there are a lot of push factors that they have in common but on the pull factor side I think we also see a lot of common elements such as uh, this utopian these utopian visions that can be quite appealing to people that show, oh, there could be a world with only whites or only non-Muslims, non um, or there could be a world with only Muslims, and, only, and that is the ultimate solution to all of the problems we're facing. And to sometimes, really, it's, it can be, I think, quite appealing to a lot of people to have, a more, have simple solutions to this hugely complex world. And that yeah, would provide just one solution for, for all the problems. And that's what gives them sort of traction, because if you can say in one sentence something needs to be said in a book, it's obviously going to win in the one sentence, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the problem. Well, it's, it's so much more, that's also why tweets are so much more effective yeah. than, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Trump can put everything into a one-liner and get a huge amount of, yeah. of support for that, because yeah. it's also a lot more simple to... With, here's a generalization, but with online culture, from what I have seen as a, a user myself, the most extreme messages, the most um, controversial things tend to gain traction and go viral. You know, they, they, it always seems to be some sort of position like that that will get more attention than a more nuanced position. Yeah, that's also the problem. That's, where, um, that's also where the media comes yeah. into all of this. 
because the media, of course, now is, is really struggling to keep up with the whole 24 hours um, news loops and with uh, news circles, with all the alternative media platforms that are, uh, that are emerging right now and where they have to compete with, uh, with all of that and, and compete for clicks and baits. And I think that's something where, of course, sensationalist reporting mm -hmm. and reporting in a very, uh, yeah, sometimes oversimplifying things can be more attractive to people. And that's where I think, especially when talking about terrorism, there's a need to really maintain a high level of nuance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a danger of um, normalizing, especially in the UK, normalizing sort of positions of the far right, like the anti-immigration headlines you know, or the focus on hijabs or, I don't know, the um, various scams involving halal meat or all these ideas of the Islamification of British society. Yeah. These are all things that end up in publications like the Daily Mail, which I would never really particularly call a respectful magazine, but it is sold, you know, it's not like Stormfront, you know, yeah. it's, it's a paper no, it's that you mainstream. It is, it's a mainstream paper, you'll yeah. see it at your checkouts and those headlines sow seeds, don't they? Yeah, and the biggest problem is that then often the, the lines get very much blurred between what's actually a, pro a security problem, what is, what, what is related to terrorism, I mean, hijabs or not, that's not, that's not even a security problem, that is, but often it gets all mixed up with the, the debate about uh, terrorism, responses to terrorism, we have to ban the burqa. That doesn't have anything to do with it, in act, uh, actually. That's a cultural question. That's a question that is, that is a legitimate one to ask, but it doesn't have anything to do with security. And I think that's really important to, to stress, because otherwise, uh, it all in the heads of people who read that, it might just become actually a, a way of saying conservative Islam is the same as Islamist extremism, which mm. exactly uh, brings us back to that essential okay. distinction between the two. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So, is it possible for people who have turned to extremism to change? Yes, I I had a lot of um, really great people that I interviewed for uh, for the book as well, who were who were really who I felt very found very inspiring because I, they they were telling me about how they could turn their backs to on, to extremism. And of course, it's always uh, usually it's a, a long process that takes a lot of courage because they would basically use all of their social network. Because um, of course often extremist movements kind of replace almost the, the family systems, the environments, um, the, the, even the friends, uh, and provide a sense of belonging. So I think with a lot of support from, uh, from policy, from intervention providers, from um, yeah, people who, who would stay also open-minded and treat them as human beings, I think it is possible. And that, that applies to both Islamist and far-right extremists. I think it's necessary to take a very human approach to, uh, to that. And I think it is possible to, for them to, to leave these networks. And it is possible for us to encourage that by not completely dehumanizing them and treating them like, like objects because they're not. The reason why I ask that question is because, especially today and today's online culture, um, there's a growing sense that you just can't get through to people who have different sort of polarizing views. And, you know, we've all been there where we've, you know, you've tried to chat with a relative who, um, you know, is espousing all sorts of stuff and you just can't get through to them or there's somebody you don't even know online who takes a totally different opinion to you. Um, so it is possible for people to change and you know what is 
sort of, in a sense, the best strategy to help people um, change if, if they are sort of going into an extremist position? I think there, there are several different um, ways to do that. I mean, there are some really good intervention providers in the UK and there are some really good initiatives, both from uh, coming from NGO sides, but also from, uh, from the government prevent program, which is very controversial, but which has a lot of good elements in there. It's not, not always perfectly implemented, yeah. but I think that uh, especially working with also with former extremists who would and with psychologists who would know very well what the processes are, um, it's it's really important to to be very I think to to very carefully select which people would carry out these interventions yeah. and these de-radicalization processes. But often former so also at, at Institute for Strategic Dialogue we found that former extremists we also have a network of former extremists who can be very effective in both doing the one-to-one -one, um, interventions doing mentoring but also uh, having counter counter speech campaigns online that would maybe first get into if, if they reach the target audience really get to uh, extremists who would think oh actually there are some people who manage to leave uh, the networks without um, uh, having huge social costs to it and it is possible to continue life after hate which is one of the, the campaigns yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. names but yeah yeah brilliant and, and that social cost I mean that's a very important thing because I mean I don't know if you know I was a former conspiracy theorist and there was a big social side no to worries. that yeah <laughs> uh, if you listen to uh, episode eight um, we talk a bit about that but um, yeah I, I, there's a big it becomes part of your social circle. You start meeting like-minded people, and it becomes very hard um, to, in the end, to leave that uh, group or, should we say, the ideology that led you to that group, because then everybody around you starts to treat you differently, and it's very strange, you know. Yeah, that's exactly. Uh, but that's exactly, I think, why it would be. It's helpful. Things like even humble. Mm brings, um, he was a former EDL regional coordinator, brings uh, some of his, uh, some of some of the far-right uh, people that he still knows or that he, that are in his network and in his environment, takes them to mosques and shows them around there and, and introduces him uh, them to Muslims so that they would meet real people and not just um, have these online conspiracy theories and be in those self-reinforcing echo chambers. Yeah. So I think it's important to, again, take a very human approach because in the end, that's also why I wanted to do the book with this very human angle and show the different pathways of individuals and really understand what's driving them and speak to them directly rather than just write about them without really understanding what drives them. Yeah. I, I think that's why it's hugely important to treat this very sensitive topic as, as a very human one. Mm, mm, no doubt. I mean, it's our humanity has got us into this, and it'll be our humanity that gets us out, I believe. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you've mentioned you've mentioned that both Islamists and far-right extremists have benefited from the global rise in identity politics. Can you just talk us through how this is so? So the problem with, um, with identity politics and with the rise of people like Trump, um, of people like uh, far-right populists in Europe, Marine Le Pen, or uh, the now uh, the, the AfD party leaders, the leaders of the, 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 the Austrian Freedom Party, is that they all represent the, or spread and propagate the same ideological fundaments that are then fueling both far-right and Islamist extremists. And that is, again, dividing the world into 
into generalized or monolithic blocks that are uh, in a conflict with each other. In, in most of the cases, it's the West and Islam. But I think by spreading these very much cultural or racial identity-based uh, viewpoints of or to see the world in, in these very binary terms, they would really feed into both sides. And then, of course, the media also plays a role in amplifying these narratives by picking up all of the... Uh, all of what they say and then it's being used in the, so sometimes uh, now Islamist extremists would use some of what Trump says, of course, they've, they've really <laughs> celebrated that Trump got elected in the night of the elections. I was monitoring the ISIS telegram channels and they were celebrating precisely because they knew he was going to drive polarization even further and uh, in the States and the same is true for European uh, identity politics. All extremists want to see is increased polarization because that means that everyone has to take a side and they hope that people will take their side but it's of course it's it's beneficial in any case to yeah. see the middle ground vanishing. Yeah which is then helps them with their goal of you know trying to destabilize our societies. Right yeah. exactly so yeah. Yeah well um, so we've sort of touched upon this, but the, the language that we use as individuals when debating terrorism and its causes is an important issue. And for example, after an Islamist terrorist attack, opportunist politicians and right-wing press like to engage in anti-Muslim and anti-immigration rhetoric. And this rhetoric sort of demonizes minorities, it normalizes hate, and it can fuel white supremacism. And likewise, that same anti-Muslim rhetoric can be used as proof by Islamist extremists that the West is fundamentally racist and at war with Islam. In an, increasing, sorry, in an increasingly polarized landscape, both online and our social spaces, it's getting increasingly harder for ordinary people to discuss their shock and disgust at both Islamist extremists and far-right extremist actions. How can we challenge both of these extreme groups without falling into the trap of furthering this idea of a clash of civilizations? Yeah, I think one of the major uh one of probably the, the major solutions to that is first of all starting by adopting a very consistent approach towards all forms of extremism. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that in, in my book I speak mainly about the dynamics and the parallels between Islamist and far-right extremism. Of course there are other forms of extremism that might be far-left extremism, that might be other religiously inspired or uh, well Christian extremism or um, anti-LGBT extremism. There are all forms of, of extremism that should be talked about in very similar ways and in consistent in a consistent way should also be tackled by both policymakers, tech companies, uh, and also the way civil society uh, kind of goes back against them by showing civil intolerance. Not necessarily always having stricter laws, but I think it's really necessary for civil society to show this is not okay and uh, and challenge this both online and offline. In the same way that now. Um, homophobia would be countered by civil society because or would be considered a complete taboo I think it's necessary to make some of the extreme ideologies or the extreme ideas perpetrated uh, propagated by Islamist extremists or far-right extremists to make those taboo or uncool or and having that consistency across all boards and also adopted in the media in terms of the language that is being used uh, when talking about terrorist incidents. There was a big inconsistency when talking about Islamist violence, Islamist-inspired violence, which is then always called uh, immediately terrorism, whereas 
far-right extremist-inspired violence would often just be referred to as murder or, mm. uh, or yeah, or mass shootings, stabbings, and I think that has caused uh, almost a backlash from from both sides because it really meant that some of the people on the Islamist extremist side, or, or even just Muslims, would think, oh, this is actually unfair if if. Uh, everything that is being committed by Muslims is called terrorism. Whereas on the on the far right side, people would have, and there is a, a perceptual gap in the way terrorism is perceived because most people have uh, the impression that Islamist terrorism is a lot more common than far right terrorism. Mm -hmm. While in terms of frequency, actually far right terrorism is is more uh, happens more often in the U.S. and in Europe, and is considered a, a major security threat uh, across the UK, but also across uh, Europe, especially in Germany. There have been a lot of attacks in the last, in the last couple of years against refugee camps, against um, a lot of uh, people have also died from that, or uh, attacks, major scale attacks were foiled by the police yeah. that would have even involved sometimes explosives or weapons of mass, mass destruction with chemical and biological weapons being increasingly adopted on the far-right extremist side as well. So, yeah, so that's, uh, I think that's, that's one of the biggest um, points to start from, I think, is consistency. Yeah. Without that, we can't really combat either form of extremism because of this reciprocal or cumulative effect that it has. Well, do you think it's actually time today? Before we wrap up, do you have any sort of final thoughts you'd like to share on anything that we've covered or something that we may have missed that's important to you? Yeah, I think um, one of the things I'd like to stress is that I do believe that there is no reason for pessimism because I'm aware that this is all a very dark topic. But and one of the problems, um, first I'm going to say a few more words about the problem before yeah. coming to, to the positive side, but I think there's, uh, extremists have been early adopters of technology. They've been really ahead of us, in, ahead of the curve really to, to make use of modern technology, or much better in their use of that. They have been much better than, than the middle ground to make use of, to really uh, appeal to the younger generations, to create this counterculture, to weaponize culture for their own causes. And they have been better at, so far, at transnational cooperation, knowledge sharing. So these are the three levels, I think, where they're a bit ahead of us. But I think there's a lot of potential, especially because there is so much motivation and so much uh, increasingly also active uh, activism coming from a very grassroots level uh, of people from the middle ground who are motivated to, to counter that and to provide credible alternative narratives to the ones propagated by extremists. And I think that is something we should really make use of and where it's, it's again, it's necessary, I think, to not have purely government-led programs, but to let civil society um, get back, mend some of the divisions that have been caused and really build, rebuild those bridges. And, but again, take a human approach to it and speak directly to the people, listen to the people who are vulnerable to the extremist ideologies or who are already within extremist circles to understand what drives them and to find appropriate measures to address that. Brilliant. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, so either by buying my book, that would be the first recommendation, but uh, otherwise you can follow me on Twitter. Um, Shuli Rende, and you can also uh, 
well, you can find me on the ISD, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue webpage. We also just recently released our report on the transnational networks and global convergence of the extreme right. And we're going to continue work both on the ground uh, with projects, but also through, uh, yeah, through research. Brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>